I try and promote the fact you have you, you need to have a big erase button. So whether you, you've just scored the, a, a great goal, you need to erase that because the next one, you've still got to do the same. It's the same with a goalkeeper. If, if you let a ball through your legs in the first minute, you've still got 89 minutes ahead of you. So are you going to let that one minute ruin the rest of your game? So you've got to have a bigger raise button to get that and look at the next shot, the next goal, the next save, because you cannot let one minute affect the next minute because you've got, you've got to look forward the whole time, whether you're a defender, a goalkeeper or a forward. That's Philip Burns speaking. Phil is a former professional soccer player, or he would probably correct me and say he's a footballer. But he played goalkeeper for so many different English soccer clubs, including Manchester United youth team, Huddersfield Town, Reading's football club, and Sheffield United. I'm your host of this Level Up Your Leadership podcast, Lisa Christen. And here's where I like to have conversations with exceptional leaders like Phil to unpack how they created their success and to discover their recommended tools, tips, and strategies that inspire listeners like you to take your leadership to the next level. After his professional soccer career, Phil decided to rechannel his love of sports and fitness, and he founded and started to run two Muay Thai kickboxing studios, one in Thailand and one in Mexico. So you can imagine all the stories behind that. <laughs> and most recently, he joined Global Premier Soccer, which is a soccer club that has ties to the football club Bayern. And he's their technical director for Southern California in the U.S. And Phil also serves as a talent scout for the U.S. Soccer Federation for Girls. So, of course, I invited Phil on the podcast because I wanted to know what success lessons he would have as a former professional soccer player himself and also now as a coach and scout for rising star athletes. And what he shared with me was, you'll only succeed if you don't let the pressure get to you. So he gave this great example that just so stands out in my mind. If you're the goalkeeper and you let the other team score a goal in minute one of the game, well, what the heck do you do for the next 89 minutes, right? Being stressed and anxious and exhausted is not going to lead to your best performance. So Phil gives us tips. What's going to lead to the best performance that you can give? What are some tips to get you to the next level of leadership? Keep listening to hear more about his wild life story <laughs> and some success tips from this professional baller. Enjoy. I'm so excited to have Phil Burns on the show. Welcome, Phil. Thank you for having me on here, Lisa. Yeah, I am so excited. I actually can't wait to see what fun is going to come out of this interview. I have to say, you're an incredibly fun, energetic, quite authentic uh, guy. And I'm mostly excited because I've actually seen how crazy your wedding was. It was the wildest wedding that I've ever been to. <laughs> and you have, you have to help me recall the details. There was, I believe, a broken nose, <laughs> a broken leg, some people that were actually kicked out of the hotel for having drunk too much. And if you're in England and you're kicked out of somewhere for drinking too much, I feel like that's a really high threshold to meet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was a little bit random. It, it started off very well. We we started drinking the, the mezcal that we brought over from Mexico. Every table had a bottle of mezcal on the table. And English and Phil, people. I don't want to interrupt, but I yeah. also noticed there was no bottles of water on the table. 
there, there was nothing to help. I didn't think about that. Yeah, I didn't even think about water <laughs> on the table. So why do you need water when you have mezcal? Eh? Exactly. Yeah, so we have a bottle of mezcal on each table. And uh, obviously, English people have never drunk mezcal before. It's sort of a strong tequila by the sounds of it. And everyone was drinking it just like uh, they would drink a pint of beer. And the first person... <laughs> A young lady who was getting married a week later was very drunk after about an hour and she stood up and fell over and landed on her nose, uh, broken <laughs> nose and two ribs, which was a great start to the day. So it just went sort of either downhill or uphill from there, whatever, whichever way you look at it, I would say it went uphill from there. So Well, you you ended up actually getting married. So we got married. Know. It was great. Uh, great experience. To, to do that with my children there uh, and my friends. It's a shame that Marina's family couldn't get over there, but at least she had a, a couple of her friends over there, including yourself. So she was very happy to have you guys there. Yes. And we're going to get into those details. I don't want to sort of jump the gun because actually the most important question that's burning in my mind right now is we just had the World Cup this year and I want to know who were you rooting for? Uh, well, in reality, that was a bit of a silly question. There's only one team that, that should have won the World Cup. Uh, England, but they seemed to bottle it in the semi-final. 20 minutes from the World Cup final and they fell apart like they always do. They oh, always, they never fail to let me down. I get disappointed every single time I watch them, but I keep on supporting them. Yeah, that's that you're no fair weather fan. Yeah, I'm quite happy to let them know how disappointed I get as well. I really support them, but I really let them know when they let me down as well. I, I feel like that's a theme that's going to come out in this episode, Phil. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you, of course, you were supporting England. I wanted to support the US. We were not in the world. Cup. Um, but I want to give a shout out. There's actually someone behind the scenes in this podcast who does the technical editing of the audio files. And his name is Ivan and he lives in Croatia. So I actually said to him, because we email back and forth quite a bit, I said, well, I'm going to root for your team and look at how that turned out. I mean, that was... <laughs> that was that's really bad because England lost to Croatia in the semi-final. So, but yeah, in reality, well, I, I wanted Croatia to win the final once they beat England. I, they're a tiny little nation, and what they did was just an amazing achievement for them. So, fair play exactly. to them. Exactly. Yeah, I was very proud for them. It was a quite a rush. Yeah. But I do actually want to know a little bit more about you, also, and I wanted to ask if I can start like way back in your childhood. Did you always love sports growing up? Oh, from a literally probably the first time I could walk, I'm sure my first memory is is going down to the local park with my brother and just playing football. And that's all we ever did. We played football in the winter and we played cricket in the summer. And that's all we did. That's all I ever remember doing as a child. And so did you know, were you like that five-year-old that was like, oh, I'm going to be a professional player one day? Absolutely. Uh, my, my brother was two years older than me, so he always made sure I went in goal. Uh, that's why I was a goalkeeper, because if I wasn't in goal saving shots from him, he was beating me up. I always just said to him, can I get on the pitch? Can I take some shots? And he would say, no, nope, you're going in goal. So that's why I was quite a good goalkeeper, because from an early age, the muscle memory kicked in. And I was just saving shots after shot after shot. And that's what made me a goalkeeper, I believe. Yeah. And it, and it kept you safe, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did okay with it. Yeah. So, uh, by the way, does it offend you that I call it soccer? Is that not allowed Absolutely, by a Brit? Yes, football. <laughs> if, I, if I went back to England and said soccer, they would just either laugh at me or punch me on the nose. Or not yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, will you forgive me? I'll try to switch over to saying football, but it's second nature to call it soccer. It, it is for me now as well. I'm getting Americanized, which is either good or bad. Who knows? But uh, I, I say soccer just 
so everyone knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, otherwise they'd be thinking American football. Okay, so you started playing, you were very young, your brother sort of put you in goal. And then how did that advance? I mean, you just kept getting into elite club after elite club to sort of keep building on your experiences. What was that like? Well, from that, you start playing on the the local park and then someone says, oh, we we have a team, do you want to play for this team? And then you say, oh, let's, let's do that, give it a go. So you play for one team and then other teams start saying, oh, you're a good goalkeeper, you're a good player, do you want to come for our team? So you just progress through the local teams like that. And then the professional clubs start coming looking at the local teams as well. And then that's what, what I did. I was then started invited to many different professional clubs in England for weeks trial here, a week trial there. Every school holiday, I'd go to a different team from Manchester United to Leeds United to Portsmouth and just have a week's training for free. And then when I was about 14, 15, I could literally choose uh, whatever team I wanted to go and play for at 16 years old when I was leaving school. And that's uh, that's what I did. Amazing. And which team did you pick? Well, I was at Manchester United as a, as a youth player, but I'm from Manchester, but I don't like Manchester United. I'm a Manchester City supporter. So there was another uh, a team that was a couple of divisions below uh, called Huddersfield Town, who are now in the Premier League. So I chose Huddersfield Town because I assumed that I would have more opportunities to develop and progress through their youth system into their reserve team and into their first team. So I give myself a chance to to progress a little bit quicker. Mm. And, and what was it like to have so much pressure as you were building up your career and it was getting tougher and tougher to compete because at every level it's more elite players you're competing against? Yeah, every every level you go up, you find it a little bit more difficult. But in reality, you don't know how good you're going to be until you get there. So you, you might be really good at one level, so you need to try the next level to see if you can do what you you know you can do at that level. And you just keep progressing through until you get to a level that's actually too hard for you. And then you drop down a level and then you, you seem to find your level like that. But I'm quite confident and comfortable that I could have gone a lot further if I'd had the right opportunities with, with managers. But things didn't work out always, but I kept my head up and kept going. But I'm still very confident in my ability to that, that I did okay in the, the limited opportunities that I had. So Phil, it sounds like there's a story somewhere in there. Do you feel like you want to share that with us? Because I'm I'm burning with curiosity. <laughs> oh, I mean the the problem with me, I'm sure you you know me by the little time that we spent together. I'm quite happy and open to express my point of view, and I did that many times with many managers. Uh, if they say Phil, you should let that goal in, and I didn't believe it, I would tell them actually, no, you don't know what you're talking about. I shouldn't have saved that. That was a great goal, and I've had many, many managers. Uh, some managers now are managers of national teams that I have fallen out with. Out of my whole career, probably 15 managers. I probably got on with three managers. That's out of 15. It's not the best scenario, really, is it? But I was true to myself. I always thought I'm going to be myself, whatever happens, right or wrong, if I believe it. That's what I say. My parents taught me that. My dad was very much like that. It's like black or white with, with our family, yes or no. And I was true to myself. It did work out sometimes, but most times it didn't. So is that something you would share with listeners to say that they should do more of that or they should do less of that? <laughs> or what's the balance? No, the, the balance is if you're comfortable in expressing your opinion and you can back up your opinion, that's fine. You will find your level 
I've done okay in my career. I've, I've followed through and I've uh, I've managed to, to gain a career wherever I am and whatever I'm doing by being myself. I'm very transparent. People can see through me. They know who I am. I don't hide anything. As I say, it works for some people. It doesn't work for other people. The people it doesn't work for, I'm quite happy not to work for those people. And I wouldn't necessarily want to associate myself with people who want me to be fake for them. Yeah. Well, I, for one, love the real you. So keep it up. <laughs> Though I've never had a, a huge fight with you, so <laughs> maybe if I were on the receiving end of something. Oh no, no, I'm not. I'm not nasty. I'm just uh, if if I have an opinion, I will quite happily tell it and back up my opinion as well. Yeah, usually. and I'm sure that's what helps you to be such a great coach, which um, I, I'd love to talk about later. I still have some questions because I'm really curious. As you're at these elite levels, you know, you sound very blasé, where you're like, ah, oh, you just do the best you can, and you figure out your level, and you just drop a level if not. But is there any sort of pressure to perform, to be the best, to be able to make it in those top leagues? Did you feel that? And what was that like? And how did you handle it? Well, the only pressure you get is uh, when you join a, a soccer club, you you sign a contract, and that could be a one year, a two year, or a three year contract. And once you have your contract, you know you're there for three years. But when your contract's coming to an end, then you realise, oh, I've got to make sure I get another contract because the soccer industry is very cutthroat. So you might be really good, but if there's someone's better than you and your contract's coming to an end, they will just sign that player and release you. And I had that a few times. So the pressure usually occurs in the last year of your contract when you know, oh, God, I need another contract. Or you you try a little bit harder in training to, to make sure you're getting the next contract and the next contract. And once you get that contract, you you can relax for a few years because you know you're you're paying your mortgage for the next few years. But anything apart from that, you're you're on your toes making sure that there's not another goalkeeper coming in or you're, you're trying not to, to make any, any mistakes during games because if you do, they'll look for another goalkeeper and then you'll be out of work. So I would say that's the only issue is, is the contract lens. And do you think that being the goalkeeper has any sort of extra pressure to it? Do you think it's the hardest position? I think it's the hardest and the most important position on the on the field because... There's only one. There's only one of you that can play at a time. If you're an outfield player, there's ten other positions you can play in. But as a goalkeeper, you're the one. If you make a mistake, it's a goal. If a forward makes a mistake, they just miss a goal, and you don't go down one zero. But if a goalkeeper, you let one through your legs, everyone's looking at you, laughing at you, talking about you. The next day, it's all on the papers, all in the on the TV, and you're the one that looks silly. But you you get to learn to live with that and. When you make a save, it's even more more fun than it is scoring a goal for me. Yeah, so the highs are higher, maybe the lows are a bit lower. But again, you, you've sort of just, Phil, you've blown past. Uh, you're like, yeah, you know, everyone's talking about you. It kind of sucks. You get on with it. But that's not such an easy thing to do for most people to just get on with it. How did you get on with it when, you know, you let a goal in? Maybe it was an embarrassing goal. Maybe you have a story you can share about one incident. And like, how did, what did you actually do to convince yourself, okay, just get on with it? Uh, it's You can literally beat yourself up about it. And it can consume your whole mentality if you do that. You have to make mistakes and, and learn from them and learn how to live with them. And I did that. A couple of times near the end of my career, I was playing at a little team called Oldershot Town. And I ball was at my foot. I kicked the ball out. It hit the guy in the head and, and they scored. And I was like, distraught. What's that all about? We won the game. Don't get me wrong. But I, I went and sat on the coach. I was sulking. I wouldn't talk to anybody. 
And then I, on the way home, I was thinking, absolutely nothing I can do about that. All I can do is look forward to the next game. Next game came, uh, we won 2-0, and everyone has forgot about it. I found that the best thing I could do is not think about the game until I was playing the game. There's absolutely nothing you can do before the game to, to prepare for the game. All, all I did, I literally shut the game out of my mind until I was sat in the changing room putting my kit on. Interesting, because I know a lot of athletes have a lot of, you know, pre-performance routines or all this stuff to help them get in their mindset. And it sounds like your routine was if you can cut out any thoughts about it, it maybe tails off any nervousness or any anxiety about it because it's a nervous energy if you can't do anything about it anyway, and that it helped you to maybe stay focused. That's correct. I mean, I as a goalkeeper, if you're if you're thinking, oh, I'm going to let this goal in, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, that's what will happen. So I literally, for a, a three o'clock kickoff, I'd get to the ground at one o'clock and I would sleep in my car for half an hour before I went into the changing rooms. I'd go into the changing rooms and then as soon as I walked through there, I, I was ready to go. I was thinking about putting my kit on, going, doing the warm up, getting ready, get hydrated, start thinking about the game once I was in there. Because I could then, I, I could do something about the game. When before a game, on the way to the game or the day before a game, there's nothing you can do about the game. You can't think positive thoughts for four days before a game. All I did, I shut it out until I could do something about the game, which was when I was getting changed or when I was going out playing. And then the, the, there was no nerves because you're playing. The nerves happen when you think about it too much. And I, I needed to make sure I stopped thinking about the game until I could do something about it. And when I was doing something about it, no nerves, like I said. Yeah, because you're, you're really in the zone. You're really hyper-focused in it. And then I guess muscle memory from all those years could just take over and you could be in the moment. Absolutely, yeah. And you can you can start enjoying the game a bit more then because if you don't, then literally, I've, I've seen players that are literally nervous wrecks for days before and then they go on the pitch and that nervous energy has, has totally drained them and, and they look absolutely shocked. It's like their legs have gone. They've, they've got no energy because they're literally drained from thinking about what they're going to do during the game. And I thought, I don't want this to happen to me. I don't want it to ruin my entire life. And at the end of the day, it's only a game. It's a job, yes, but it's still only a game. I'm not going to die if I let it go through my legs. <laughs> I like that. And also, you know, you said you have a life outside of just this game or this career. Um, you have four kids. That's not a small number of kids. <laughs> how did you balance or, you know, I assume you were playing at least while you had them while they were young. How did you balance having kids, being focused, being nervous? Okay, if the contract doesn't get signed, I don't have food on the table. Yeah, it was it was a challenge at, at some points, but having the kids made you focus on your life outside of it rather than thinking about what I'm going to do, how I'm going to play or, or what I'm going to do next. Being a, a soccer player, you only train for two hours a day. So I would, I would be back home by one o'clock every day to see my kids and do kids things and take them down the park. And I wouldn't be thinking about, oh, this game coming up and I've got to make sure I do that because I'd have the kids. My focus when I wasn't playing football, was playing with the kids and doing kids things. So that was a, a massive bonus to have the kids at the time. Uh, my two youngest ones, or my two oldest ones, I should say, uh, came to quite a few of the games. The The younger ones came, but they can't really remember. So well, that's a bit of a shame. But the, the two oldest definitely remember coming to watching me at games. And they, so they, they helped me focus the fact that it is only a game. I have four lovely kids. 
that's what I'm doing it for. Yeah. And you have, the, yeah, you have this family, you have this life that even if it doesn't work out with soccer, you still have something meaningful in your life. Yeah, that's the idea. You're doing it for the kids, but you're living for your kids as well. You're not just playing football for the kids because you can always get another job. And that's what I thought to myself. A lot of people just focus on football, 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 and getting more money and getting a bigger contract. But in reality, I had my kids, so it didn't matter whether I had a job or not. I, I knew I'd always managed to, to, to make ends meet somewhere or other because I, I'm that confident type of person. So I had my kids, so nothing else seemed to matter, really. And how do we all build that resilient mindset? Because, Phil, you're like, cool, whatever happens, I'm good. I got this. I'll figure it out. I'll find a solution. It's all going to work out. Again, that's not really like the normal thought process for most people. How do how do listeners, how do I tap into that energy? What, you know, how do you <laughs> how do you just brush it off like that and just go, yeah, I've got this? It's just literally a mindset. If you're for me, I just focus my mind. If I can do something, I can. If I can't, I I, I won't. And you've got to be confident in your ability, in your own abilities to do something that you know you can do. Again, you can't just keep beating yourself up. You can't be worried about everything all the time. I'm confident that in my ability, I can go to nearly any job and, and do a good job. If I don't know it, I'll learn it. If I do know it, I'll do it really well. If I do something I like to do, I like to be one of the best at what they're doing. And I won't do something that I can't do, like technology. I'll get my wife to do that for me. And I don't want to know about technology. But if, I, if there's something that I do know that I can do, I will do it really well. And if I, if I don't know how to do it, I will find something that I do know and I will just make sure I do that to the best that I can do. I have to say, I, those aren't just words coming out of your mouth. You've actually lived your entire life that way. I've seen it in your career because when you did end up finally leaving professional soccer, what was next for you? Well, when I left professional soccer, I then started working for my, my ex-wife's father's business. It was builders merchants in England and literally I didn't have much education. I've been playing soccer all my life. What do I do now? So, okay, let's go and work for my father-in-law's business. I started off as driving a, a lorry for him and I ended up as a branch manager, a very successful branch manager. So yeah, you, again, you can do something and you just work your way through and you do it. Literally whatever I did, I was the best lorry driver. I was the best company representative and I was the best manager of, the, of all the managers that he had and that's what I strive to achieve I'm very competitive what I do so if I'm doing something I've got to be good at it yeah and how did you I don't know if there's something in between working that job and you know around the time that I got to know you you were running a Muay Thai kickboxing studio in Thailand I don't know if there's something that happened in between there but how did you end up in Thailand running a Muay Thai kickboxing studio okay right so what happened there a little bit of a sad story there as well along the way, and this is one of the reasons why I, I made a, a huge life change. Uh, about 10 years ago, my brother died in a motorcycle accident, and then six weeks later, my dad died. And I was starting to think to myself, gosh, there's got to be more to life than just here we are now. So I did a thing called an Alpha course, which is a, a, a Christian Alpha course. So I became a Christian about 10 years ago. And by doing that, I thought, yeah, there is more to life than now. So I, I started exploring what else I could do, uh, where else I could go in life. Uh, am I just going to be a, a manager of a builder as much as all my life? Is this where I'm going to be for the next 10 years? And I thought to myself, no, I want to do something different. Let's see what it is. 
So I literally just looked around the world and I chose a country, Thailand. Uh, I chose Thailand because I love the food, I love their weather, and I know they love soccer. So literally all I did then, I contacted a few agencies, a few Christian agencies and said, can I come and uh, be a volunteer at one of your orphanages for six months? Two of them said yes. So literally I packed my job in in England uh, and got a one-way ticket to Thailand started teaching English at uh, uh, Chiang Mai Home for Boys and started teaching them soccer at the same time. So that was the reason I ended up in Thailand. Once I was in Thailand, I was doing that. I was enjoying it. After six months' work with these amazing kids, I thought, I want to stay here. I've got to find a, a way of earning some money to, to stay in this lovely country because now I've left England, don't necessarily want to go back. I want to go back to see my kids but I'm, there's more to life than, than just staying in cold, wet old England. So once I was there, I had a look around. I started working for a boot camp, uh, instructing fitness. And while I was there, I met a, a US Marine called Chris. Uh, he was a Muay Thai fighter. And we came up with this plan to open our own gym and open our own boot camp, which we did. And within the next three or four months, we'd found a facility. We started building and we had our own fitness boot camp and Muay Thai gym. Again, I was I wanted to, to be very good at what I did. So I was training three or four hours every single day as Muay Thai, as a Muay Thai instructor and fighter. And I loved the fact that, yeah, you could go in there, you could punch somebody in the face, they could punch you, and then you go and hug each other at the end. And you're learning a new skill, one, to defend yourself, and two, to keep yourself fit. And I have two questions. First, can you explain a little bit about what Muay Thai is for anyone who's listening and doesn't know? So Muay Thai is kickboxing, basically, but you're you're able to use, you can kick somebody, you can use your knees, you can use your elbows, and you can use your fists. So Muay Thai means eight points of contact. So eight points is, is a fist, elbow, knee, and leg for each leg. So you can basically do everything apart from use your head. It's quite a brutal sport, but it's very disciplined at the same time. Incredible. I've, I've watched some fights. I'll include a link in the show notes to some videos because it's amazing to watch. Um, but I would be too scared to go in the ring personally. But but I, I want to take a step back, just a pause to you were working at this orphanage. And it sounds like it had a really meaningful impact for you that, you know, you said something about this, something about Thailand makes you want to stay, makes you want to you said, I'm looking for something bigger. There's got to be more to life. And this was the more. So is there something that happened at the orphanage in particular or anything that you recall that where you said, like, this is a change for me? Well, I say so I wanted to, to do something, not just for myself, but to help other people. And to go to this orphanage, there was there was 300 boys there. You, I, I turned up at this orphanage uh, with this charity. And these kids... They have nothing, but they have huge smiles on their faces and they just come up. And I was teaching them English and teaching them soccer and English was their third language. They were they were from the hill tribe. So they had the hill tribe language. They had Thai and then they had a very, very small amount of English. And it just showed me that, hey, you don't need a language to communicate with people. You can communicate with your face, with your with your smile, with your hands, with your gestures, and then with a soccer ball. Get a soccer ball out there, and it's the universal language. I had kids from 5 to 19, and their, their level of English was the same. So I was just 
teaching them English during the day, which is very, very basic. And then in the evening, we were playing football and I was showing them how to play football, getting them into teams. And one of the best things that I did was, oh, it was the most amazing thing. We played a game and we got absolutely hammered by this team. They'd never played a competitive game before, ever. They got beat about 7-0. I said, oh, there we go. But they enjoyed it. And then at the end, the, the, the last day I was there, we played the same team. And we beat them 2-1. And it's like, oh, what an achievement to turn this, these kids around from never playing a competitive game before, didn't didn't know where to stand on the pitch. They could kick a ball. They knew how to strike a ball and save and shoot and all that, but they didn't know how to play. And then to sort of three or four months later, to then play the same team who play every week, and we beat them. The kids, like, they were running around like they'd won the World Cup. And they're hugs and high fives. Like, yes, pictures all over the place. It was lovely. Oh, I, that was a, for me, that was a great achievement to, to help these guys achieve something. It sort of touched me. I thought the look and the smile on their face was just amazing. <laughs> well, and it sounds like, you know, you spoke about how you loved your children. You loved these children at the orphanage. And I know at your Muay Thai kickboxing studio, some of the programs that you offered were actually for, I don't know the right words to say. Can I say troubled children or what were the programs like? Who who was coming? Uh, we we had a variety. I mean, the, the the boot camp was mainly for sort of Australians, Americans, and British people. They were they were okay. They were the people that had the money, who spent the money, who basically kept our gym going. We also had a program for an addiction clinic who would come in. These were mainly addicts from Australia and they were kids from sort of 16 up to about 32. And that was one of the, another, another challenge that I literally loved uh, helping these kids. Uh, I call them kids, 32 year old kids, I suppose. But the, the challenge that I had with these, these guys walking up there, literally just coming off meth or heroin the first day, they could hardly even walk into my gym to a month later going out of there fit and addicted to exercise. And then probably three or four of them turned into Muay Thai fighters. And then I'm still, I mean, three years later, I was still in contact with probably 20 of them and asking how they're doing, what they're up to, are they behaving? That's my first uh, question to them when I talk to them. Are you behaving? Yes, I'm trying hard, Phil. I'm trying hard, Coach Phil. So I, I connect with people and I don't just meet people and forget them. That's the thing that I do. I like to connect with people and keep that connection going. So that was a huge challenge to to help these kids from Australia. And But it was a challenge that I really relished and, and enjoyed. It's probably... For work-wise, the, the six months or, or eight months I spent with them is probably one of the best, most challenging, but most, what's the word that I'm looking for? Most, uh, give me a word, Lisa. Rewarding. rewarding that's the word, the most rewarding <laughs> job, paid job that I ever had. Uh, the most rewarding job, the most rewarding volunteer work I had was with the orphanage, but the most rewarding paid work I had was with these uh so-called addicts from Australia who were actually really good people. They were just going through a bad stage in their life and the majority have come through and they're on the way to, to being good humans and good people again. So I'm very happy with, with what I did there. And connecting with them. I mean, it sounds like, Phil, that you just, you really care about people. I, I cared about people. I, 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 when I was growing up, I was, I, I tell Marina, I was a little bit naughty. I'd get into a little bit of trouble here and there, have the odd fights and things. But in, I've got a good heart. Uh, and I can see with lots of these people that they might have just gone through a little bit of rubbish in their life and things happen. But if they're good people, let's get that good out of them. You believe in people. I had some people that believed in me when I was 
when I was growing up, when I was going through a bit, bit of a bit of trouble. And if you haven't got that person that believes in you, you'll always be that bad person. That's what I thought. And if you believe in people, show them a bit of respect, show them a bit of love and show them that you do care. The majority come through and they respond to that. And can you imagine out of the, the amount of people that you see, if they then go and do that to other people and they do that to other people, how, what a nice place we would live in, what a nice uh, earth we would live on. Yeah, it would be a great world. And, you know, you, you've mentioned that you apply this in your coaching. Is this also how you managed like the employees on your team? Is this how you were as a boss in addition to how you are as a coach? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, for when I was a boss and when I am a boss, I treat people, I'm not their boss. I'm just their friend type of thing it, that I have to tell them what to do every now and again or tell them or ask them to do something. But I sort of invest in their lives. I need to know these people. I need to know what makes them tick. If you don't know what makes them tick, how can you ask them to do something that they necessarily don't want to do or advise them how to do something if you don't know what their home life's like or what, what, what what's good or what's bad for them? You've got to invest in their lives. So you've got to understand them to be able to help them. And to be able to manage them as well. That's really great advice because that often, you know, people just don't always have the time to know everything so personal or in business, you know, a lot of people like to keep a professional distance. So they say, okay, my business colleagues know this part of my life and my friends know this part of my life. And you're saying, actually, if you open the door and you're uh, sort of interested in knowing the whole person, it's much easier to connect with them, to know them, to work with them, to manage them, to befriend them, to get things Absolutely, done. Absolutely. Because if someone might be having a hard time at home and then their work's really affected but if you didn't know that they were having a hard time at home you just think that they were a bad employee so you've got to get to know the reasons why that they're they may be not performing very well and then you can maybe help them and and take that into account a little bit more before you you're you're too harsh with them so if you know them you can help them and then it, it makes life easier for them as well so they can tell you i'm having problems here so just take it easy for me today okay i understand if you do this you might be able to address that issue and then you you work with them like that rather than just being really harsh with them some people actually have troubles with that because then if you get too friendly with them they don't necessarily know how to discipline them or ask them to do something they don't want to do so you it's, that's not for everybody don't get me wrong you've got to be a fairly strong character to be able to do that you you've got to be able to say no or ask them to do something they don't want to do even though you're their friend and you're you know everything about them it's not easy and I've had issues myself with that, but I've learned from that and learned a way to actually deal with, with people once you get to very friendly with them. Will you share a story of when that actually happened to you, where you, where you learned the hard way? I learned the hard way. Uh, yes, I, I employed a, a good friend of mine back in England. He was, a, he was a little bit older, so I gave him a job working in the yard. So basically, he was just loading. He was a bit older than me, but I... I felt sorry for him and I was working with him, but we'd go out, we'd go partying together. But then at work, he was he was doing less and less and less. And I thought, oh, how would you deal with this? He's a friend of mine. And everyone that was working with him was saying, Phil, you've got to deal with this guy. And I said, yeah, he's a friend of mine. How do I deal with this? So I sort of took it easy with him for, for a few weeks. and But in the end, I just had to call him and I said, John, look, mate, you're letting me down here. So I put it back on him. I said, look, I've given you this job, yeah. You're letting me down. So I didn't have to give you this job. I've given you this job, and please don't let me down. You've got to do even better than everybody else because you're my friend. And if it, if it looks like I'm being favourable to you, then it will look bad on me. So hey, 
basically sort yourself out. Otherwise, we're going to have to uh, part ways. So I took my time and I thought about how to deal with it. So in the end, I just put it back onto him that he was letting me down and he, he responded really well. And in reality, he's still there. He's still working in the job even after I've left. So he responded well and he's, he's doing okay now. So it, was, it wasn't easy for me at the time. But it was a lesson learned how to deal with issues again for me. And I learned from that. Yeah. And it sounds like it's Im- it's important to address it head on because it could have sort of ruined the relationship. It could have really deteriorated the friendship had it gone unsaid. Absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of people, um, even I was like backing away from it because I didn't want to address it. I didn't want any awkward situations. But by dealing with it head on, I said after a couple of weeks, and I thought the best way of dealing with it is like, Okay, let's talk about this, John. And then he admitted it. Yeah, yeah, I was doing that because you was my friend and I didn't think you'd do it. But the best way is to be upfront, to be talked to someone and to, to be honest with them. That's the big thing. Be honest with them and they'll be honest with you usually. <laughs> well, I think based on how authentic and open and caring you are, it sounds like that's the kind of connections you have. And I, I want to ask you because not only did you have this Muay Thai kickboxing studio in Thailand, but you ended up opening one in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. Absolutely, yes. And how did you, how did you go from one part of the world to the total <laughs> other part of the world? I was chasing the love of my life. That's what I was doing. I was chasing my wife. Uh, so I met Marina over in uh, in Thailand. She came to my gym. Gorgeous little Mexican lady that I ended up marrying. And she was traveling the world. She ended up going back to Cabo San Lucas. And I just, we were, we were in contact nearly every day, even when she was carried on traveling the world and went to England and then back to Mexico. And we connected really well. And she, she expressed an interest in opening a restaurant there. So my gym was going well. And I just said to my business partner, I said, tell you what, Chris. Would you mind if I just left you and went to Mexico for a little while? I want to follow my heart. I want to give something a chance because I want to see how far this is going to go. And he, and he was very open. He said, Phil, just go. Just go for it. So I told Marina I was coming. She, she didn't believe I, I was going to come out there. But then I turned up there. And it was the best thing I ever did because I ended up marrying this young girl. So I got there. And again, I'm in a, a, a new country, a new culture. What do I do? Uh, I wanted to teach soccer because I'm, I, I know what I'm doing there, but there's not that, that many players in, in Cabo San Lucas, but there's lots of people who want to keep fit. So I said, okay, I will do my Muay Thai gym. So I, I just bought some equipment, started coaching, started teaching and grew a business from that. And that went very well. It was hard work because I was the only person working there. I was working many hours and it was very hot there, but it, was, it enabled me to connect with Marina, get to know Marina, Marina Marina to get to know me a little bit more. The best thing I ever did was to go there. If I didn't go there, I would still be in Thailand and I wouldn't be married and I wouldn't be here in America now. So the best thing that I did was to go to Cabo San Lucas when I did this. Well, Phil, now you're giving us love lessons as well as management <laughs> lessons and leadership lessons. So thanks. So the, so the big romantic gesture is still alive oh, and absolutely, well. absolutely, yes. <laughs> But but again, it's the same attitude that comes out for you that that I hear quite a bit, which is you got to go for it. You got to just take the risk. You know, don't worry about the anxieties. You got to have the confidence to just give it a shot. Figure if it works out or it doesn't work out, I'll deal with it then. But you got to. Yeah, go I'm for the type it. of person that I I'm, I much prefer to try something and it doesn't work rather than think, oh, we should have done that. Never, that might have worked. 
it's better to do it. And if it doesn't work, go back to where you were and and and, and carry on the, the life that you was in. But it's better to regret doing something rather than regret not doing it. That's my mantra on life. <laughs> And that, that probably explains how you got yourself into a bit of trouble when you were a kid, but we <laughs> no, won't go there. <laughs> but so, okay, so you, uh, like you said, you were in Mexico, you loved it, you were running your own uh, Muay Thai kickboxing studio, and now you've made this move to the U.S. What prompted you to move to the U.S. from, from well, Cabo we, San Lucas? We went from Cabo San Lucas, we went back to see my gym over in uh, in Thailand because I was still involved in the in the Muay Thai studio and the, and the gym over there. Uh, while we were over there, it was an unfortunate situation that the the king died. So it seemed to be that the, the Thai's opportunity not to renew work permits. Uh, at the same time, I was having issues with my business partner through uh, his own issues, through PTSD and addictions to many things. So it was a, an opportunity for us to, to step away from that gym and to draw a line under the, the Thailand situation. So then we were, right, where do we go? Me and Marina, we could go to England, we could go to Cabo San Lucas, or we could go to uh, San Diego, where Marina used to, to live and work for many years. So for me, England was too wet and cold and damp. Mexico was too hot and too, what's the word? There was lots of hurricanes and lots of issues there at the time. Uh, so we said, let's give San Diego a try. So we ended up here 18 months ago, and it's a great place, great climates. Very expensive, don't get me wrong, but there's some huge opportunities to do many different things once you get here. And the great part about it, Phil, is, again, you've landed on your feet. You've come to the U.S., and now you're the technical director of San Diego and Orange County, uh, California area of the Global Premier Soccer. So what exactly does that mean? What do you do? So what I do for uh, GPS, which is Global Premier Soccer, I basically look after the coaches and the teams of these the, the areas that we're in. I have 13 teams down here in San Diego. I have 10 teams in Orange County. We have teams in Los Angeles that I go and look after, teams in Sacramento and San Jose and San Francisco. So all I do is I, I coach goalkeepers, which, which is my massive passion. I love to coach the goalkeepers. But I also make sure that the coaches that are looking after all the teams coach them to a decent standard and coach in the right way and the right method. So I just oversee them. I advise them. I help them. Uh, I show them different sessions. I go from one club and one team to another. So each day I'm at a different location, just helping and advising. And and your organization, GPS, is in partnership with Football Club Bayern. Is that correct? What does that mean exactly? Yes. So Global Premier Soccer, they're based out of uh, Boston on the East Coast. We're in 27 states in the United States. We're in Valencia as well in Spain. We're in Puerto Rico. We're in England. Uh, and we are the sole partners of Bayern Munich uh, from Germany. So basically, it's Global Premier Soccer and Bayern Munich. So we, we're promoting Bayern Munich over here. I've just done a camp, uh, a residential camp in University of California, Santa Barbara, where the German staff came over and they look at our best players and they're taking one back to Germany to, to look at. So we're finding them players. 
And for the fact that we're finding Bayern Munich players, they, they let us use their logo and we can use their uh, their brand to promote and market the fact that we're all over the United States. I think we have something like 85,000 players that we're in contact with and we coach on a regular basis here in the United States. Wow. And so you, you're also a, a talent scout as well for the U.S. Soccer Federation for Girls. And I'm really curious to know when you're scouting talent, you know, not from a technical perspective, I don't need to know like who's better at playing, you know, this position, but what are you looking for in terms of mindset, in terms of who you think can really get to the next level, make it to the next level, like you said, can really play at the elite levels? We go on education courses and they tell us the things that we look for and things that we don't look for. But literally half of it is the mindset. We, we're looking at players that, that can perform whether they're winning 5-0 or whether they're losing 5-0. And we look at players that, if it's not going right, are they still trying to do the same thing? Have they still got the same mindset to, to do the same skill, whether it doesn't work five times in a row? Are they learning from it? Are they still developing? If their team concedes a goal, are they the, the players to, to get the, the team driving forward? And it's mainly if they can perform when they're not doing well as a, as a team and as a player that we're looking at, it. can they still do it? If it's if it's if they're having a bad game, are they still running around? Are they still have they still got that same determination, whether winning or losing? That's a huge thing that they that they're looking at here. Many people can kick a ball and trap a ball and shoot a ball, but are you sulking if it, if you let one through your legs or you miss a miss a sitter and you you miss a, an easy goal, or will you say, all right, let's let's get the next goal? And that's one of the things that they look at is that. The mindset is exactly the same, winning or losing. And that's the big thing that they, they want us to look and promote. And as you're coaching, either the coaches or the players themselves, what tips do you have to help them to develop that mindset? I try and promote the fact you have you, you need to have a big erase button. So whether you, you've just scored a, a great goal, you need to erase that because the next one, you've still got to do the same. It's the same with the goalkeeper. If you let a ball through your legs... In the first minute, you still got 89 minutes ahead of you. So are you going to let that one minute ruin the rest of your game? So you've got to have a bigger raise button to get that and look at the next shot, the next goal, the next save, because you cannot let one minute affect the next minute because you've got, you've got to look forward the whole time, whether you're a defender, a goalkeeper or a forward. And this is so interesting because I think about also culturally, you've been able to coach really in so many different areas of the world. You were in England, Thailand, uh, a bit of Mexico, you're in the US now. Have you seen that there are cultural differences in the mindsets or how the kids are playing? There's huge cultural differences. Uh, the Thai kids just want to do everything. They want to run around. They want to play football. The Mexican kids uh, very seem to be very lazy. They don't want to run around when it's too hot. The American kids, uh, what's the word, without being too rude? <laughs> Entitled. Yeah, that's a good word. They seem to expect everything uh, without putting the effort in. But the ones that do put the effort in really stand out. The ones that really mean it and doing it for, for the right reasons really, really stand out. And how do you coach out laziness or entitlement, if you can, if at all, if you've found that that works or there's any sort of tips for how to break past some of those mental blocks that someone has and to move forward? It's really hard because especially here in the in the US, you can't tell a kid that it's not a good shot. 
And that's, I think that's where I'm different, where everything over here in, in America seems to be good job, good job, good job, when actually it's not a good job. Uh, and I'm finding that people actually are opening themselves up to the fact, gosh, you can, you can actually say to a, a 12 and 13 year old boy or girl that that wasn't a good shot. You don't just tell them it wasn't a good shot. You tell them it wasn't a good shot, but this is what you need to do to make it better. Because if they just accept mediocrity, they accept that, oh, yeah, it was a good shot. It was near, it was near enough. That's all it will ever be. But if you tell them, okay, it was a good effort, but it wasn't a good shot, what you need to do and, and show them how to make that shot a little bit better rather than just saying well done all the time. And that's what I'm finding here, that nobody ever says that's not good enough. And they always expect that it's, oh, yeah, that's okay. But So I've got to... I'm getting through to my coaches that, hey, if it's not right, tell them it's not right, but sh also show them how to make it right. And that's the big thing that the big change that I've found here is 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 telling them that. And this occurs a lot in the in the offices as well. I mean, this is what millennials are sort of known for, yeah. quote unquote. I mean, you know, it's, it may or may not actually be true. It's a stereotype. But millennials are known for this entitled feeling and they want to be told good job all the time. And so the story goes. So if you are a, a person who's grown up, who's used to being told you're great all the time and you don't really know how to take feedback, do you have any tips for how to become better at receiving feedback? Well, you've just got to be open to criticism, but it's not just criticism. If, like I say, if, you, if you're telling someone that they're, they're not doing it very well, they're not doing it right, you can tell them that, but you also need to explain even more how to do it better. And then when they do it well, to encourage them even more that they're doing a, a great job when they do it well. But you can't just tell someone they're doing it well if, if they're not doing it well. Uh, say. Tell them how to do it right and then encourage the fact that they have done it well once they do it well. Yeah. And what would you say of the stuff that we've already talked about or anything that we haven't talked about, what would you say is your number one piece of advice that you would tell anyone who's looking to take their leadership skills to the next level, whether it's in sports or you know, in your health or in business or mental states, whatever, what is that one piece of advice that you want to share with For us? me, I, I would just like people to relate to the, the person they're trying to help. Just put yourself in their, in their shoes. We've all had good and bad parts in our life, and we all need help at some point along our, our journey. So you've just got to relate to each person. Uh, everyone is different. You can't say one shoe fits all, and you've got to get to know the person you're trying to help or coach or teach. It's not going to be right for every person, whatever you're saying. You've got to... You've got to get to know each person and you've got to relate to them and think how you would uh, how you would like to be treated if you was that person. Amazing advice. I wish we could all follow that a bit more. So, Phil, what haven't I asked you that you would like to share with us? Good question. Good question. I can't, I can't remember. I've, just, I've been speaking so much that I can't even remember what we've been talking about, to be honest, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> So great. You feel like you've shared everything. And um, where can people contact you, follow you, social media? How can people get to know more about Phil? Well, they can look at, uh, they can check me out on Facebook, Phil Burns. They can quite happily email me if they like, philmburns66 at gmail.com. They can check out Global Premier Soccer San Diego. Uh, I will be in there. Quite often you'll see a picture of me there. Uh, same again with Global Premier Soccer California and 
global premier soccer in the United States. I'm on, on lots of their, their social media from there. More than happy to talk and chat to anybody, always. Well, thank you so much, Phil, for speaking with me today. It's been a real pleasure. No worries, Lisa. Thank you for your time. Thanks for listening to another episode of Level Up Your Leadership. If you're interested in learning more about today's guests and the topics we've discussed, check out the show notes on www.lisacristin.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please go to iTunes to subscribe. While you're there, it'd be great if you could rate and review the show. And if you really like the show, I would appreciate it if you shared the word on social media. As always, thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.